Hello, I'm John Eldridge, and welcome to the Ransomed Heart audio podcast. For more information on Ransomed Heart Ministries, our resources, and events, please visit us online at www.ransomedheart.com. This is John Eldridge, and welcome to the Ransomed Heart podcast. I am very, very excited to be able to share with you over the next few weeks some thoughts about Jesus. What I'm going to do is read excerpts from Beautiful Outlaw, which is a new book that I wrote on the personality of Jesus. There is nothing in the world that matters more than Jesus. To know him, to have him, is to have the greatest treasure you could ever have. And so it follows that our enemy's greatest work is to keep us from knowing Jesus as he really is. And he's been very effective in this over the centuries, presenting to the world distorted images of Jesus. You know what I'm talking about, bizarre religious depictions of Jesus or just strangely spiritual. What we have lost is the personality of Jesus. And reading the Gospels without his personality, without knowing what was in his voice, the twinkle in his eye, without knowing what he was actually like, you get a pretty strange figure doing strange things. It's like watching television with the sound turned off. And so what I want to do is unpack the personality of Jesus, his playfulness, his cunning, his fierce intentionality, his joy, his incredible, scandalous generosity. You are really going to love this. And so let's explore Jesus together. The tipping of the landslide, sunlight on water, songbirds in a forest, desert sands under moonlight, vineyards just before harvest. These all share something in common. They reflect the heart of a particular artist. They are his masterpieces, his expression, and his gift to us. The artist's name is Jesus. Something else lies in common between these treasures and Jesus as well. Words on a page cannot compare to a personal experience. Sailing the ocean on a bright morning with the wind in your face, wandering under a forest canopy while sunlight filters down, lying on warm dunes beneath a full moon, watching shooting stars, drinking in the lush beauty of vineyards on a hillside in early autumn, these experiences are far closer to what it is actually like to experience Jesus than mere talk of him could ever be. More words about Jesus are helpful only if they bring us to an experience of him. We don't need further speculation or debate. We need Jesus himself. And you can have him, really. You can experience Jesus intimately. You were meant to. For despite the vandalizing of Jesus Christ, both by religion and the world, he is still alive and very much himself, though nowadays it takes a bit of uncovering to know him as he is. 
For to have Jesus, really have him, is to have the greatest treasure in all worlds. And to love Jesus, that is to settle the first question of human existence, of your existence. Everything else flows from there. Now, loving Jesus will not be a problem when you know him as he truly is. So, that is the place to begin, or for some of us to return to after long wandering. We have quite an adventure before us, and the greatest treasure in the world to recover as our own. And so it will help to keep close the simplest of prayers. Jesus, I ask you for you, for the real you. Let us begin with a story. The Playfulness of God and the Poison of Religion This episode takes place a week or so after Jesus saunters out of the tomb he borrowed. The Apostle John, one of Jesus' closest friends, recounts it. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Cana, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord! As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord! He wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. From John chapter 21. Okay, so many things are delicious about this story, it's hard to know where to dive in. First, the boys have gone fishing. Can you blame them? The events of the past two weeks have been to say the least, overwhelming. The emotional high of the triumphal entry, palm branches waving, crowds shouting, Hosanna! It all crashed lower than anyone thought possible. Their beloved Jesus was tortured, executed, entombed. But then, fantastic beyond imagining, he appeared to them again, alive, twice. Though at this moment, they're not sure where he's gone off to. Not really sure what to do next, unable to endure one more agonizing moment waiting around the house. They do what any self-respecting angler who needs to get out and clear his head does. They go fishing. Apparently, fishing naked or darn close to it. Notice that Peter needed to put his clothes back on. Notice how casually Jesus enters the scene. His best friends don't even know it's him. This is the resurrected Lord, mind you, ruler of the heavens and the earth. Think 
Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus could have announced his risen presence on the beach with radiant glory. He knows there is nothing in the world that would help his mates more than to see him again. He certainly could have shouted in his commanding way, It is I, the Lord, come thou unto me. He doesn't. He does the opposite. He hides himself a bit longer to let this play out. He simply stands on the shore, hands in his pockets like a tourist, and asks the question curious passers-by always do of fishermen. Catch anything? The nonchalance of the risen Christ here is absolutely intriguing. Whatever Jesus is up to, the moment is loaded for his next move. Now, two more things are needed to set the stage properly. First, what would you guess Jesus' mood is? this particular morning? I mean, surely he must be happy. The man has conquered death, ransomed mankind, been restored to his father, his friends, and the world he made forever. He is in the afterglow of the greatest triumph, of the greatest battle in the history of the cosmos. I'm going to venture that he is one mighty happy man. But not the fellas. They've been up all night, nothing to show for it, bleary, half dead at the oars while the boat rocks back and forth, back and forth. They could use some cheering up. Last, how did these, his closest brothers, first encounter Jesus? It was here, along the shore of this lake, possibly this very spot, knowing how fishermen tend to keep their boat near a favorite hole. That first compelling encounter also involved the fellow skunked after a night of fishing. It, too, began with a seemingly random instruction. Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. From Luke chapter 5. So, this has happened before. That first miraculous catch, nets bursting, boats swamping. It must have felt like ages ago, after all that has unfolded, or unraveled, depending on your point of view. But it was their story. The way they got pulled into this whole revolution. Most Christians can tell you in detail how they met Jesus, especially if it was a dramatic encounter. That payload was a story this inner circle no doubt talked about many times after, as guys will do, as fishermen will especially do. Sitting around their nightly fire, somebody brings it up with a smirk. Peter, the look on your face was priceless. And then, imitating Peter's reaction, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. And they all fall to cracking up about it again. My buddies and I used to make an annual fishing trip to the eastern Sierra Nevada. Though our catches might not have been miraculous, we did haul in a scandalous load of fish, and in classic man fashion. Campfires, canned beans, no showers. Except one year, we brought a guy named Bill, who would take an hour every morning in camp to primp and preen and even put on cologne. We'd be in the car, laying on the horn, while Bill combed gel into his hair. Years afterwards, we'd rib him for it. 
All anyone needed to do was start the story with, Remember how Bill and somebody laugh, snort coffee through their nose, and the whole gang would be gasping for air again? So, here the famous disciples are three years later. They've pulled another all-nighter off that same beach. The boys are skunked again. And Jesus does it again. Try the other side. Again, the nets are bursting. It's how he lets them know it's him. This has all the wink of an inside joke. That rich treasure of friendship, the running gag between mates, where over time all you need to do is start the first line and everyone cracks up all over again. Try the other side. Another jackpot, just like the good old days. Nothing more needs to be said. Peter is already in the water, thrashing for sure. Do you see the playfulness of Jesus? His timing, the tension, his hiddenness, a tourist-like question. The same lame suggestion from somebody they think knows nothing about fishing, and then bang, the catch, and the boys are hooked again. This is a beautiful story, made so much richer because of the playfulness of Jesus. And by the way, that little detail that John tosses in, that the catch was 153 fish precisely, that too is a beautiful touch. The net contained not a boatload of fish, nor about a hundred and a half, nor over a gross, but precisely an hundred and fifty and three. This is, it seems to me, one of the most remarkable statistics ever computed. Consider the circumstances. This is after the crucifixion and the resurrection. Jesus is standing on the beach, newly risen from the dead, and it is only the third time the disciples have seen him since the nightmare of Calvary. And yet we learn that in the net there were an hundred and fifty and three, how was this digit discovered? Mustn't it have happened like this? Upon hauling the net to shore, the disciples squatted down by that immense writhing fish pile and started tossing them into a second pile, painstakingly counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all the way up to a hundred and fifty and three, while the newly risen Lord of creation, the sustainer of their beings, he who died for them and for whom they would gladly die, stood waiting, ignored, till the heap of fish was quantified from the river Y. Or it might have gone like this. These retired fishermen, overcome with the joy of seeing Jesus, leave the writhing pile where it is, fully intending to get to it right after breakfast, having had the cookout, which Jesus grilled, by the way. One of them says, well, we ought to get that catch counted up. And a second says, yep. And Jesus, reaching for a last bite of roast tilapia, says, there's 153. The boys smile at one another, realizing, oh yeah, right, we've got Jesus back. Any way you look at it, it is a beautiful story. Playful, funny, so human, so hopeful so unreligious, and it is that particular quality that gives the passage its true character and gives us an essential for knowing Jesus as he really is. The man is not 
religious. If he were, the story would have taken place in a religious setting, the temple, perhaps, or at least a synagogue, and Jesus would have gathered them for a Bible study or a prayer meeting. Jesus doesn't even show up at the temple after his resurrection. He's at the beach, catching his boys fishing, filling their empty nets, and then having them to breakfast. Now, why does this interpretation of the story both relieve and trouble? The relief comes in like a sea breeze on a muggy summer day, suffocating with the smell of mud and dead fish, because it is an answer to a question we didn't dare ask, that God himself knows how and when to be playful with us. It's like a breath of fresh air. But many readers are at the same time troubled because it also sounds a little irreverent, which brings me to my second point. The Poison of Religion Jesus healed a man on a Sabbath. That pushed his enemies over the top. They decided to kill him. The account takes place early in the Gospel of Mark. Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. From chapter 3. Really? Because he healed a man on a Sabbath? What do we have here? After all the nonsense that is repeated about Jesus being a gentle peacemaker, reading the Gospels is really quite a shock. We discover a Jesus who is in fact frequently embroiled in conflict, most of which he provokes himself, like healing on the Sabbath. And every single one of these clashes is with very religious people. Not one hostile encounter involves a pagan, not until the end, at least, when the Roman troopers get hold of him, but he was handed over by the religious establishment. If you were reading the Gospels without bias or assumption— you would have no trouble whatsoever coming to believe that religion is the enemy or in the hands of the enemy. Jesus' opponents are all people we would consider to be highly invested in doing religion right. They certainly consider themselves to be so. You will want to keep this in mind if you would know Jesus really. For to come to know Jesus intimately as he is, as he wants to be known, is to release a redemptive landslide in your life. There will be no stopping the goodness. The first purpose of your existence will be resolved, and from there, you are set to fulfill all of God's other purposes for you. Now, do you really think that the enemy of our souls, the arch-enemy of Jesus Christ, is simply going to let that happen? Satan is far too subtle to rely on persecution alone. His most masterful works are works of deception. Ask Adam and Eve about this when you see them. So, 
the deceiver deceives by means of distortion, and his favorite tool is to present a distorted Christ, not so blatant as a bad fish, but through the respectable channels of religion. Consider this one piece of evidence. Millions of people who have spent years attending church, and yet they don't know God. Their heads are filled with stuffing about Jesus, but they do not experience him, not as the boys did on the beach. And there are millions more who love Jesus Christ, but experience him only occasionally, more often stumbling along short of the life he promised, like Lazarus, still wrapped in his grave clothes. Can anything be more diabolical? If you sent someone you love to school for a decade, and yet they remained illiterate, how would you feel about the education? If you referred someone you love to a doctor, yet despite years of treatment, they not only failed to recover from their cancer, but contracted HIV, hepatitis, and gangrene, what would you have to conclude about the treatment? I am not making accusations. I am stating facts. There are noble churches and movements bringing Jesus to us, but alas, alas, they are the exception, not the rule. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. His enemies decided to kill him. Do you really think that's over? Why would that have ended with the time of Christ? I mean, really now, it would be just a little arrogant for us to assume that we could not fall under the same religious haze. And thus George MacDonald, that old Scottish prophet, asks, How have we learned Christ? It ought to be a startling thought that we may have learned him wrong. It is a startling thought. That must be far worse than not to have learned him at all. His place is occupied by a false Christ, hard to exercise. Hard to exercise indeed, because religion gives the impression of having Christ while it inoculates you from experiencing the real thing. Most wicked. If you want to destroy an economy, flood the market with counterfeit bills. So, the Apostle John gives a last word of warning. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is even now already in the world. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth from the spirit of falsehood. From 1 John chapter 4. A mighty important caution but I'm afraid we read it with the same attention we give to the average pre-flight safety demonstration in the event of a water landing. So, let's take it piece by piece. John says there is a spirit of truth, that would be the Holy Spirit, and a spirit of falsehood, which he calls the spirit of the Antichrist. He laments that many deceivers have infiltrated our world, animated by this spirit of falsehood a sobering picture, and he urges us to pay close attention because that spirit works by presenting distorted images of Jesus. Now, 
If John didn't think you could fall prey to it, he wouldn't have warned you about it. Before the ink was dry on the Gospels, the young church was swimming in this stuff. Now, let me make this perfectly clear. The spirit of falsehood is often a very religious spirit. How else could it sell its deceptions? Over the past 2,000 years, it has flooded the church with counterfeit currency. I'm not talking about only the blatant stuff, the Inquisition, witch trials, televangelist scandals. Such repugnance does cause the world to turn away in disgust, a very effective technique. But while those forgeries have become obvious to us, consider, they were very convincing at the time. For the religious spirit is like the flu. It is constantly adapting to the environment. It would be hard to hold a witch trial in our day. So what might it be in our time? Last week, a friend heard his pastor say, You can't know Jesus like you know your friends. He is altogether different from us. Blasphemy. You can know Jesus just as intimately as his first disciples did. Maybe more so. Jesus came to be known, for heaven's sakes, came to make God known to us. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. From Hebrews chapter 1. Jesus came to reveal God to us. He is the defining word on God, on what the heart of God is truly like, on what God is up to in the world, and on what God is up to in your life. An intimate encounter with Jesus is the most transforming experience of human existence. To know him as he is, is to come home, to have his life, joy, love, and presence cannot be compared. A true knowledge of Jesus is our greatest need and our greatest happiness. To be mistaken about Him is the saddest mistake of all. You've been listening to an excerpt from my new book, Beautiful Outlaw, which comes out this October. We are so excited about this project because this book is an awesome way to introduce people to this Jesus. And so, We've created a really cool book trailer that you can email your friends and a video series for groups to use, which we are giving away for free. And in fact, we're also going to give away some free signed copies of the book. And so for more information, come to beautifuloutlaw.net.